In 23 years, Barb Robbins has come a long way from working in a factory to now being a lieutenant at a Big Ten University Police Department, overseeing training, accreditation, and crime prevention, among other things. I'm Mary Shank, and this week on Legally Speaking, Robbins talks about how her service on the University of Illinois Police Department led to a fascinating 10-year assignment with the local FBI Terrorism Task Force. We'll be back after this. Hey, Jim Rosso, News Gazette Media Vice President, reminding you that we have a ton of podcasts available at newsgazette.com every day of the week. From Dave Gentry's Morning Show to Scott Beatty's News Hour to Brian Barnhart's Penny for Your Thoughts. Head to our website, newsgazette.com, and search for podcasts. My guest today is Barb Robbins. She's been a member of the University of Illinois Police Force since 1996. Welcome to Legally Speaking. Thank you, Mary. (laughs) While Barb has many talents and experiences in her more than two decades on the job, I confess that I asked her to be here because of one of those experiences, which I think sounds really cool, and that is your service on the FBI's Joint Terrorism Task Force. So I'm kind of hoping that you can start with what I think is a fairly unique experience among police officers to have that kind of service, is it not? Yeah, so how we get involved with the FBI is that we are lucky to have an FBI office here in Champaign. Um, With the FBI office in Champaign, they can take on law enforcement officers who want to belong to their task force. Mm -hmm. So they have a joint terrorism task force which basically we look into terrorist type cases. They have a drug task force and the officers will work drugs. They have an instant imaging task force and that would be for child pornography. Oh, sure. And then they have a financial one. And so local law enforcement, we are allowed to, if we want, if the department wants to give up an officer, they can belong to any one of those task force. So you did that for how long? Well, I was originally supposed to go over for three years, and I like to say that my department forgot about me because I ended up being over there all together for 10 years. That is awesome. And talk about the kinds of things that qualify as a terrorist case. Well, when you belong to the Joint Terrorism Task Force, you're you're basically treated like an agent. So my territory was from Kankakee to Effingham. And so anybody who called in any type of information to the Mm -hmm. FBI, because we have what's kind of considered like Crime Stoppers, a tip line, then they would just get put out to who's ever in the office and we work cases. So for instance, say we got some school threats in Effingham, Illinois, someone is making uh, a threat to shoot up the school or do harm then what I would do is I would go and investigate that. Because actually making a threat at a school to harm people is, under state law, making a terroristic threat. So Effingham to Kankakee is the region that... For me. That was my region. Um, There are these task forces all over the United States, though, aren't there? Correct. So there are 54 field offices uh, for the FBI, and any of those field offices can have any of these task forces as long as they can get the PDs, police departments, to give up an officer. How did you get chosen? 
Well, it's kind of interesting because what we did, we did interviews at our place mm-hmm. when the FBI first approached our police department. And so anybody who was interested could put in for it. And at the time, I was an officer and the only officer who actually put in for it. Everybody else was either a sergeant or a detective. And then the FBI would come and ask us a series of questions. So how, how did you even know what you were getting into, or did you? <laughs> I'm going to be honest, I did not. But, <laughs> you know, when you're young, you always think of the FBI, the DEA, the CIA as being these big organizations. Mm-hmm. And so when I got the opportunity, you know, I never say no. I put in for stuff because... I think, you know what, this might open doors for me later on in life, and it could be a good experience. Well, I think you've hit both of those that are a big yes, right? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I mean, working with them has really been the highlight of my career. Um, And a lot of it has to do with casework. Okay. So give us some examples. You've just finished up the Brent Christensen case, which, of course, is huge um, in our community and Unfortunately, um, internationally, because of the victim being from China. And uh, talk a little bit about what the task force did for that case. I know there are a lot of people who wonder, why did the feds take this in the first place? Right. So that's an interesting question. So when you think about me as a University of Illinois police officer being assigned to the Joint Terrorism Task Force. Mm-hmm. The university still pays my salary. Okay. The FBI pays my overtime. I'm provided a car, and then I show up at their office every day. So when the kidnapping happened, uh, it started out at the U of I, but we only have so many resources, and we only have so many people. And when we realized that this was a real issue, we reached out to the FBI because I'm the liaison. And so I kind of spearheaded it of let the FBI get involved because we have a quicker way to look at phones, to look at computers, you know, all the electronics, where if we would have gotten that stuff and sent it off to the state lab, it could have been months before we got it back. The FBI have people over in Springfield, Illinois, that can can look at that stuff right away. That is an amazing resource. It's huge. I mean, it is huge, and the FBI has helped us with a lot of cases. I hate to say, make this sound negative, but it's not always what you know, but who you know. And having you there as the person to reach out to got things done a whole lot quicker, didn't it? Absolutely. By having me on the task force, I was able to keep the university up to speed on what was going on with the case. I was able to tell and work with the FBI on how to manipulate and kind of work our way through how the U of I works. You know, not wanting to give out too much information to people who didn't have a need to know. And so that was my job, was to kind of work both both sides of that case and you know the amazing thing is is that whether we want to believe it or not the fbi has a lot of resources that police local police departments just do not have right um I I laughed to myself when you said the need to know. I mean, there isn't a reporter at this paper who didn't try and pump every single source we have for just a little bit of information. And I'm always fond of saying, you know, you can't get the feds to confirm that the sun is shining on the record. That's right. (laughs) Right. We can either uh, confirm or deny. Um, And so, yeah. And I mean, there was a lot of things going on with that case that even our officers didn't know. And why is that? Why why is that level of secrecy You just have to be very, very careful about information because it does get out. 
you know, and not on purpose, but maybe somebody have a conversation with somebody else or somebody's overhearing a conversation. So, you know, when you work at large investigations like this that have a lot of moving parts, we just need to keep things, you know, very contained so that it, you know, the wrong information does not get out to the public. Give us just an idea of the time, the effort, the manpower put in on Christensen. Since that's closed, his uh, period to file an appeal has passed, so I think we're safe to talk about it in general terms. Yeah, you know what, Mary, I don't know exactly, but I can tell you that there were several agents, all the agents in the Champaign office working it, along with uh, people over in the Springfield office and Uh other FBI offices, we were working nonstop for months. We would we were working 10, 15, 20 hour days, um, you know, looking at, you know, videos and contacting people. And there was so many hours put on that case that I, I couldn't even say. But it's amazing how quickly it did come together. You had him arrested within two weeks. Yeah. And a lot of that has to do with our, you know, camera system that we have been putting in at the University of Illinois, and mm-hmm. we have been upgrading it every year. Um, there's always, you know, the take on, you know, do we like cameras? Are they invading our privacy? And, you know, what do we really use them for? Well, mm-hmm. this is what we use them for. Yes, um, We don't watch people 24-7. <laughs> we don't have time. But when we have a serious incident like this, I mean, the cameras came through. How many how many agents do you think that was when you say the whole Champaign office and the whole Springfield? That doesn't mean anything to me because I I would say there was a good twenty five to thirty agents working that case because it was champ. It was a lot of the offices, like a lot of agents came from other offices in Illinois to help us. That's amazing. And then you know who to reach out to locally. I know so and so who has expertise in whatever. Yes. That's great. That's great. And did you ever expect the level of cooperation to be that good? I mean, I know from observing police officers in action for many years, as I have, um, sometimes people get territorial about jurisdictions. Absolutely, uh, because we were working with a lot of different police departments, and that is really, that is the goal of having a person on the task force, because it is your job to to help people work together and to deliver the messages. And I can only imagine on how many phone calls that cut down on, because I was, I have my top secret clearance, and so I could talk to both you know, all of the police departments and the FBI. And that's helpful. Yeah. I mean, you have to be able to work together and uh, not be selfish with your information, even though you can guard it. (laughs) Right. Well, I was very proud of this case. I mean, there were, everybody took ownership of this case. Uh, People at all of the officers at the U of I and the FBI and Champaign. I mean, everybody who helped us with this case, you know, they really took ownership and they were very happy to see closure. In back, getting back to just the U of I's inclusion on the task force, do you think um, as a research institution or just a college campus with a huge number of people here, does that make us more vulnerable to acts of terrorism? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think any any university that does research and has a lot of, you know, we have a lot of research here at the University of Illinois. We get a lot of federal grants. So you always have to be aware of 
Are there bad people here going to our university that is trying to steal research or manipulate it? Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, that is also something that the task force would look into. Oh, that is interesting. And do you have those kinds of cases very often? Not very often, but, you know, they don't just fall in your lap. (laughs) I mean, they kind of evolve around you know, people and incidents and coincidence. And then people are like, hey, I think there's something going on here. So then I would look into it. Uh huh. I um, made a note that, you know, you were at the U of I president's house when Barack Obama um, got his award back in September 2018. And I, I walked in the house to cover the event, I think. I, and I just remember seeing your face thinking, oh, good somebody I recognize. So what was your job besides escorting me to the basement? Does it still? Right. Why were you there that day? That, you know, that was a great day. That was a great day for Champaign-Urbana, a great Mm -hmm. day for the University of Illinois. And so anytime we have somebody uh, who falls in a certain level of importance, who comes to the university, we always assign Uh, somebody to work with the Secret Service. So for Obama, I was assigned to work with the staff of the Secret Service at the president's house. And so, again, that way I know the people, I know the resources, I know the terrain, I know the exit plan. So that's an advantage because they're just coming in from out of town and they don't really know the lay of of the university. So because he was moving to several different places. Yeah. And quickly that day. Yes. And so, yeah. So I got to work with them and then just be the security in the house. And if anything went down, then I that would be on my shoulders to make sure it got taken care of. <laughs> well, fun. And it was well executed. He was, yeah, was he was in and out of here pretty seamlessly, yes. wasn't he? Yes. Uh, not that a lot of planning didn't go into that. A lot of a lot of <laughs> planning goes into having uh, folks come and visit the the U of I, especially if they have their own security forces. Mm-hmm. Um, you are a lieutenant now, and I realize uh, that when you were hired in 1996, you were far from the first woman on the force, but there still weren't that many back in. 96 and of 62 sworn officers today there are still only nine that are women so talk a little bit about that I mean has that helped you being a woman has it held you back Uh, did you feel like a distinct minority (laughs) yeah I mean you do definitely feel like a minority uh, and it's ingrained in your head for years that it's you know this occupation is a male occupation so I would say that my going through the ranks has not been easy, but you have to, you know, stay on course. You got to stay, stay focused. You know, don't, I put in for stuff because I want to do it Mm because I'm passionate about it and I'm good at it. Uh, But, you know, a lot of women will get into law enforcement and realize this is not for them. You know, the hours and you've got to work as a team, you've got to be open and you Mm got to be very tolerant. And, uh, You know, a lot of women may join the force and then decide to start a family. And then it's very difficult if you're working second or third shift. So, um, yeah, it wasn't easy, but I feel like I'm in a good place. And you got your master's while you were working full time, didn't you? I did. One of the benefits. Talk about that. (laughs) One of the benefits of working for the University of Illinois uh, Police Department is that you get free tuition. And so I got both my bachelor's and my master's. finished them through the University of Illinois. And what were you studying? So I picked education, 
which I know some people go, that's kind of strange. <laughs> but at the time, I was working at the Police Training Institute. Okay. And I was an instructor there. And so they really wanted their instructors to have bachelor's or master's degree. Mm -hmm. And so I decided, you know what? I should go back to school and get my master's. Let me ask what you first, what were you teaching at PTI? So I teach a lot of stuff in the classroom. I'm very passionate about uh, sexual assault, domestic violence, child abuse. I taught a terrorism class and uh, many, many other classes. I do like to teach in the classroom, which a lot of officers do not. Well, yes, you have to have a, the ability to communicate and I, I, you know, I, I know just from years of being around police officers, everybody gets into it because they want to help people, right. but not everybody's great at communicating with people. You are very correct. And, you know, the PTI group are, you know, usually about a group of 70 to 80 brand new officers in the state of Illinois, so they don't know what they're getting into. And so, you know, by me teaching there, I feel like I'm delivering a good message for them. You know, it's the real deal. It's this is not all like you see on TV. And it keeps me kind of young in a way because I'm teaching them the basics. And that keeps me, you know, the officer safety and how to handle a domestic call mm -hmm. and the importance of making sure that the victims are taken care of in sexual assaults and domestic violence cases. I'm kind of sidetracking a little bit here, but I'm thinking... As a university police officer, you probably had far more sex assault than you did necessarily domestic violence, child abuse. Um, how, how has that been, trying to develop that skill when you're not actually out on those calls all the time? Or, and and I, I want to know, what do I tell my 20-year-old daughter when I send her off to college about <laughs> right. sex assault and drinking and drugs and all the stuff that goes hand in hand with well, when I, first, when I first got hired at the police department, we, we have a team of officers mm -hmm. that will report, take reports on sexual assault. So these are officers who just have a little bit more passion for these cases because they're slow moving. And did they purposely want to put a woman on there just no. to help with the communication aspect? Nope. Nope. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, okay. I, Go I was just one of the volunteers, but some of the male officers are very good at doing interviews. And so I was on their sexual assault response team for years. And even after I went to the FBI, I uh -huh. still con uh, continued to work some of the cases that we had on campus. So I was always available if we didn't have somebody uh, to take these calls. Very good. Very good. So anyway, you you did most probably more sex assault. I assume there is, I'm, I'm yes. said to say, a certain amount of domestic violence on campus as well among students. Right or staff. Absolutely. In those calls, I mean, law enforcement is very unpredictable. And that's because people are unpredictable. And so it really doesn't matter if you're working in Champaign-Urbana or you're working at the U of I. I mean, you could have something go seriously wrong pretty fast because you're dealing with people who are in a very bad place at the time we have contact with them. Right. And so it's, it's not always, you know, you're not looking for stuff to happen, but you need to be ready if it does. And that's important. Yeah. Um, okay, so back to your education then. Did you also get your master's in education? I did. Okay. I did. And what else did you think you needed to know? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I'm always kind of interested in, you know, working with people and how to teach them. And so when you have officers, 
you know, everybody has different learning styles. And, you know, now that we're hiring the new younger group, they're very different than when I first started about how we deal with stuff, how they communicate. I mean, they're your technology folks where, you Mm -hmm. know, some of us older officers are not. And so you just have to learn to what's the best way to teach this new officer. I'm on the recruiting uh, committee at the university. So, you know, when we're looking for people, what, you know, what are we looking for? And then once they get here, how do we train them? How is recruiting these days? Do you hear that there is quite a shortage of police officer candidates or qualified candidates? How is that these days? Recruiting for all the departments, I think, is very tough. Uh, Chief Stone, our chief of police, Mm -hmm. he has been working very hard to make sure that we stay at our full capacity. Um, On the 22nd of this month, we'll have three people graduate from the police academy. And then we are slotted to have three more go in. So he is trying to keep up with the retirements. And, you know, so far we've done pretty good at recruiting. Mm hmm. I know so many of my contemporaries in law enforcement get out pretty much at the earliest opportunity, whatever that is, 25 years or 50 years of age. And Yeah, most uh, yeah. officers are, I mean, most of the people that I was hired with, because I have 23 years now, mm-hmm. they they both basically retired with 20 years on. I'm, I'm always pleased when somebody can get out healthy and happy and somewhat normal, but yeah, <laughs> it's a high stress job. It <laughs> is a high stress job, but I look at it like I'm still having fun, uh-huh. and so I... I don't plan on going anywhere very soon. (laughs) There you go. You have to be happy. Yes. Well, and I chatted with Chief Stone a couple of weeks ago, and he mentioned that he brought you back, as I put it, to the big house. He said, I don't want to have somebody with a master's degree in education. Um, I need need her. Yes. So tell us what you're doing in your new job as lieutenant. So I got promoted on June 2nd to lieutenant. And because I have my master's degree in education with an emphasis on training and development, mm-hmm. uh, Chief Stone has put me in charge of departmental training, accreditation, cool. oh and God. crime prevention. So I am in, in recruiting. So Okay, well, let's talk about each okay. of those. those are, okay. Those are all massive categories in they and are. of themselves. So training, you've got to be up to speed on everything from having the manual on best practices up yes. to date to making sure everybody reads it and understands it. Sorry, and, I don't and, mean and to And not answer. only that, but, you know, when I first started in police work, we didn't have any mandates. And now they have about 13 classes that officers are mandated to have. So, which is, a, which is a good thing because now every officer in the state of Illinois has to have eight hours of sexual assault training. They have to have domestic violence training. They have to have cultural, kind of <laughs> cultural competency training mm-hmm. and procedural justice. So as a 21st century task force put together all of these ideas, they have now unfolded in Illinois, and we have about 15 mandatory classes that officers must take every one year or every three years. So it's your job now to make, to sure, make sure everybody's got their hours in? Yes. Okay. And talk about the importance or significance of accreditation. Well, accreditation is something that my chief is very passionate about. It is making sure that every policy at the police department is up to date and it is going with the best practices. So we are ILEAP right now, and he wants to get accredited one step higher to Kalia. 
And so this year we're going to start that. So right now, if we say we just have around 300 policies, Mm -hmm. by the time we're done with Kalia, we'll have about 500. (laughs) So it'll be my job to research the policies, what's the best practice at universities, and then create policies that surround the university setting. Oh, it sounds exhausting. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I'm not quite sure. I don't have that one under. Uh, I don't have a handle on that one yet. Yeah, and uh, do you find yourself having to get motivated to go to work? Oh, today I'm going to work on policy 482. <laughs> yeah, it's you know it's been a cultural change for me because now after 23 years I'm off the street, oh. and I'm you know I'm doing other stuff which is a great challenge because uh-huh. I have not done any of this stuff before. But it is a little different when people ask me, hey, Barb, what case are you working? And I'm like, well, I'm working on policies, you know, so it's a change to be off the street, but it's time. Sure. Your cocktail party spiel is just slightly different now. Yes. Yes. Um, I noticed that among your the things in your bio when you got promoted, it said you graduated this spring from the 141st Administrative Officers course at the University of Louisville Southern Police Institute. So what were you learning there? What did they send you there for? Well, at 54, that was a little (laughs) bit of a shift for me. So I basically went to the University of Louisville. So I was on the Uh campus living in a dorm Ah. for three months. Oh, my goodness. Attending classes at the uh, Louisville Police Institute. And we were I was taking uh, four master level classes on leadership and management. Was this uh, did you already know about your promotion then? No. Uh, I had actually put in and got a scholarship for $6,500. And then Chief Stone, he is a graduate from SPI, and so he was all for it. And so I went there and I lived uh, for three months. Well, if he knew about it and knew what you were going through, he knew you were good lieutenant material. Then. That's what I'm thinking. So I did find out while I was at the class, and it was very exciting. Well, that's cool. Yeah. So what was that like, being away for three months, four master's level courses in three months, yeah. really? Being away from home, I got that. It was uh, opening the books again, writing <sighs> papers, doing research papers. Mm. Uh, I had to refresh myself with the uh, library again and, and how to do that. But at the end, it really was a good it was good for me because now I just have a more of a sense of what best practice is. Mm-hmm. And I was in a class with 50 other people. And they're all law enforcement. So now I have 50 people who can help me if I have a question. Very good. And so it was a good experience. Well, and if you had to spend your summer doing research papers, maybe those policies aren't so daunting to That's tackle. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I totally agree with that. Well, and it also said you were elected class historian by your peers. Right. <laughs> so I was uh, probably the least uh, technology person when it came to Facebook, Instagram, and all that. So, uh, unfortunately, I let the cat out of the bag too early. And so then the class elected me as historian because I was going to have to post stuff on Facebook and Instagram and then do a end of class PowerPoint Mm -hmm. of all the activities that we did while we were there. So that was a little. uh, Oh, I'm right with you. You know, that was a little tough. But again, uh, you know, I have my nephew here with me today and. Uh, he knows all about that kind of stuff. So. I know. It's it's embarrassing that that which is so intuitive to our children. Yeah. Uh, I heard a comedian once say the only reason he had kids was to program his VCR. And now, of absolutely. course, VCRs are, <laughs> yeah, are obsolete. But I laughed out loud because that yeah. was... <laughs> 
So spot on for me. Yeah. Um, so tell me what you like to do outside of work. Have any hobbies or do you even have time outside well, of work to do know, anything fun? Or <laughs> I think if you ask anybody at my place, they might tell you I'm a little bit of a workaholic. I stay pretty focused when it comes to work. Uh, but when I'm not at work, uh, I like to vacation, like to travel, mm-hmm. uh, like to go to national parks uh, around the country. We, uh, I scuba dive. Oh so my. I definitely like to go to the Caribbean. I was going to say, um, can't do much of that in central Illinois. Yeah, of course, with all the shark bitings that's happened over the last couple of months, I'm a little leery. But yeah, kind of just travel and, and I like to spend time with family and friends and just kind of disconnect from work and I didn't ask you, are you an Illinois girl? What brought you to Champaign-Urbana? So uh, I've been here for years. My dad uh, was in the service for 30 years, and his family was from Seymour, Illinois. So when my dad uh, retired over 30 years ago, we uh, landed in Seymour, Illinois. So I've been here ever since. And did you go to the U of I before you became a police officer? No, no. I went to Parkland College. Oh, very good. Yep. Lots of good... uh, Police officers with lots of good training. Uh, Chris Fitzpatrick, one of your predecessors, started her career at Parkland. Yes. I actually, when I was going to Parkland, I actually worked uh, as a security guard for Parkland. And so I worked there as a security guard for five years. So that gave you a little bit of taste of whether you thought you were cut out for this? Well, but then I tried to get hired and really had a hard time getting hired. And I think mostly because I was a female and a lot of places did not have female officers. I mean, I remember doing ride-alongs, and I'm like, yes, you know, I want to be a police officer. I want to work. And they were just like, yeah, we, we're we not really uh, interested in hiring women. Even I, in 1996, see, that seems like well, modern, very recent times to me well, since I've been at it a while longer than you. But I didn't get into police work until I was 32. Hmm. So... After taking classes at Parkland, I actually worked in a factory for 12 years. Oh, okay. And that was hard work. Uh, And then I met somebody on the U of I police force, uh, Vanessa Horseman. Oh, yes, I remember Vanessa. And she uh, helped me and mentored me through, and then I applied for the U of I and got hired. Well, very good. Well, I'm just in awe of, I mean, really, 23 years is kind of a blip. I know it probably seems like a long time, but... You've accomplished so much. Yeah, and I just keep wanting to go. You know, I don't know at what age people get at, and they're just like, you know what, I'm not done. I'm just starting. And there's just so many opportunities out there for folks that I just feel like I need to just keep giving, you know, and do what I can. Well, I'm thrilled for you, but I guess I look to you as we wrap up here to how do you get people motivated since part of your job is kind of recruiting? Um what do you say to young people about police work? Uh, there's a lot of negativity out there, thanks to social media. But There is. Um, um, and it isn't an easy line of work. It is not. <laughs> uh, but I'm pretty uh, passionate and excited about my job. And so usually when I spend some time talking to people about how much I love my job and the education you can get and the people and services that you can work with. And, you know, we talk about what the job entails. And you're, you know... People kind of don't get in this job and be like, oh, I don't like it, but I'm going to stay. Really, you, you either like it or you don't. And, sure. I mean, you lose, you lose people. But I still think, regardless of social media, this is a great profession. It's a great career. But you have to work at it, mm-hmm. and you have to work at trying to be a positive person. Because you're dealing a lot of time with negative people all day long who may or may not want to talk with you. 
And so it's very hard to stay individually motivated. I'm with you. Um, I always, people ask me, you write about this depressing stuff all day. And I said, well, I I go home and watch Frasier reruns right. and things that make me laugh out loud and not right. a whole lot of crime shows, although right. there are a few. But yeah, it is, it's all about internal motivation. It, it is. I mean, you, you know, you do have to go to court and you do write about a lot of negative things, but we need people to do that. And you're very good at well, it. And you have talent. And so... Thank you. you know, that's what keeps that's what keeps people going and being transparent is by folks like us who are out there and mm-hmm. we're delivering the message as right. we see it. Well, and I want to say thanks. I'm sorry for you that you're out of the street work that, that's you okay. know, is the part that is, you know, so much fun and in the trenches. It's kind of like I never really wanted to be an editor. I love being out there outside of the building, meeting people, writing about people. But. Um, we sure need people like you who are well-educated and have been there, done that. I mean, would you, could you have ever imagined when you were at Parkland College you'd be a FBI terrorism task force Absolutely member? Absolutely <laughs> not. sounds so tough. <laughs> uh, absolutely not. When I went to leave there after my 10 years, they were very sad trying to offer me other little jobs there. Aww. But, you know, I'm loyal to the U of I. Uh, the police department's been, you know, it's good to me. The community is good to me. And so... Um, I'm going to stay put. Well, glad to hear it. And thank you so much for being my guest today on Legally Speaking. (laughs) Thank you, Mary.